to the first section describing our sin is what we find in chapter 3, concluding at verse 20. So we're going to read verses 9 through 20, which is really the, the summary, the apex of the section of Romans that talks about our sin. Starting in verse 9, the apostle says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Now Lord's Day 2, coming off the summary of Lord's Day 1, where it tells us that there are three things that we need to know to enjoy this comfort described in the first question and answer. Well, Lord's Day 2 helps us begin that process by asking, how do you come to know your misery? The answer is the law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, I've always enjoyed repairing things. There's something satisfying about taking something that doesn't work and restoring it to working order. Probably the most frequent objects of my repairs are cars. I've never owned anything resembling a new car, and so there's frequent opportunities to fix things. But something I learned early on, before I even got a driver's license is that the hard part isn't making the actual repair. I mean, there's challenges to that, figuring out how to disassemble things, figuring out how to work around other parts that don't need to be repaired. But replacing that broken part really isn't the hard part. The hard part is figuring out what's broken, diagnosing what's wrong. You turn the key and nothing happens, but why? Is the starter bad? Or is it the starter relay? Or is the battery dead? Or is it corrosion on a battery cable? Or is the ground suddenly not making connection anymore? Or could it be the ignition switch? Or a sensor? Or, you know, there's, there's all of these different possibilities. 
multiple components that could fail that could cause the vehicle not to work the way it ought to. And you have to diagnose to figure out what it is. But if you're going to diagnose to figure out what's wrong, you have to start with knowing how everything, in general at least, works when it's working right. Right? Your car's not working right. You need to know that, that for the engine to run, it needs fuel, air, and spark. Those are the three most basic components for an internal combustion gasoline engine, right? So you can start by checking those three systems, and if you find that there's no fuel getting there, okay, well, now you know that that's the section that you need to focus on. Why is it that fuel is not getting into the, the cylinders? And you work your way backward until you find the component that has failed. Now, that works for cars, that works for electrical systems, that works for pretty much anything that needs to be fixed. If you start out with knowing how it ought to work, you can figure out what's not there and you can work your way back to what's broken. And that's why God gave us His law. Because spiritually, we're broken. That's our misery. And what the law does is it sets before us an image in both positive terms and negative of how we were meant to work if we were working, if we were operating, if we were living the way we were designed, the law says this is how it should look. And at the same time, the law says these are all the things that you're doing, all the things that are happening that shouldn't be. So the law helps us to diagnose what's wrong, reveals to us our misery. And that's where we need to start. Because we can't understand truly, fully, properly what needs to happen to fix us unless we first accurately diagnose the problem. God's law was given to reveal the reality of our misery. That's our theme in Lord's Day 2. And the first thing the law shows us is the standard against which our souls must be measured. And that standard is God's righteous requirement of love. So that's our first point, God's righteous requirement of love. As I said, the first step to seeing what's wrong is understanding how things ought to work. When it comes to our spiritual condition, God's law gives us the template for how it should be. Now understand, when we talk about God's law, in this context, we're talking about the commands, the moral commands given to Israel through Moses. We're talking about those moral directives that were applied through the case laws and through the, the writings of the prophets. We're talking about the ethical instruction that was fleshed out by Jesus and by the apostles in the New Testament. Now, in some sections of the New Testament, we're warned that we are no longer under the law. For the most part, what it's referring to in those cases, there's different contexts, but for the most part, it's referring to the ceremonial law, the purity command the worship commands, all of which were pointing forward to help God's people understand who Christ would be, what He would do, how He would accomplish His work. God's people are no longer under that ceremonial law because Christ fulfilled it when He came and accomplished His work. But the moral law remains. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the law will not pass away until all is accomplished, right? So we're still called to recognize that that moral law is binding on all men. That's what we find in the Ten Commandments. That's what we find fleshed out in the case laws of 
of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's what we find applied, often with fairly harsh tones and, and specific situations in the writings of the prophets. But when we break it down, God's moral law is not terribly complex. Because if you boil down all of those individual commands, all of those separate applications, they reveal together God's righteous requirement of love. That's what stands at the heart of it all. That's what shows us how things ought to work if they were working as God designed them. Now, Lord's Day 2 cites an instance in which Jesus was challenged by a Jewish Bible scholar. There had been a debate among the Jews concerning which command of the law was the greatest, which command of the law was most essential. Was it the first, that men must acknowledge no other God than the true God? Or how about the second, which calls us to worship God in the way that God is commanded, in the way that glorifies God? Others say, no, 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 it's the third, because that's the one for violating which you can't be forgiven. Now, others said, no, it's the fourth, because that's the one that God said itself is a covenant with his people. And still others said, I don't know, maybe the fifth. I mean, the fifth really calls us to recognize the authority of God, even as it's applied among men. And still others argued, no, it's the tenth, because the tenth is the one that takes all of these surface commands and applies it down deep to the heart. And so they argued endlessly, debating, each insisting that his position was clearly superior and at the same time decrying the unfaithfulness of all the others. Not unlike some of the hard-nosed reformed folks who, who simply live to defend their denominational distinctives. And by posing this question to Jesus, what they were trying to do was discredit him. Because pretty much whatever he would answer, they figured would put him in one camp and set him against all the others. And so they would begin limiting his influence. They would have a toehold of criticism, a way to devalue his counsel in the eyes of at least some of the Jews. But Jesus didn't fall for the trap. Instead of citing one of the Ten Commandments, and saying this is the one that's clearly superior or this is the one that is the controlling influence. Jesus instead quoted Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Here's how Mark records the event in Mark 12. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Jesus answered the most important is hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, what he was saying in quoting that passage is that all of those ten have a single goal. Yes, they each address different temptations to sin. Yes, they each address different sectors of life. But together, they express the varied fruits of a single command. All of the commands of God's law call us to love God. Love God enough to deny all others who would claim to be God. 
Love God enough to worship Him the way that delights Him. Love God enough to cherish and to protect His name and His reputation. Love God enough to set aside your labors, your efforts in favor of resting in His worship. All of those commands focus the heart on loving God. And not only the first four. You shall not murder means we must love God enough to cherish and preserve His gift of life. You shall not commit adultery means we must so love God that we reflect His selfless and devoted love toward us in our marriages. You shall not steal means we must show our love for God by not alleging that He has given to others what He should have given to us. All of the commands of God's law call us to love God concretely, actively, and intentionally. And they go further. Because true love for God leads us to love also our neighbor, our fellow man. Because man, even in his sin, bears God's image. And therefore, how we treat other people reveals how our heart conceives of God. How our heart relates to God. In line with the ninth commandment. When you refuse to bear false witness against your neighbor, well, you're loving your neighbor by protecting him from the consequence of lies, but you're also loving God by reflecting his love for the truth, his love for justice. And when in line with the fifth commandment, you honor your father and your mother, well, you're loving your neighbor by upholding that authority structure and order in society and in the family, but you're also loving God. By expressing trust in him who set those authorities over you. In other words, when you love your neighbor inherently, you are expressing love for God. And let us never forget that God is the originator of love. 1 John 4 emphasizes that reality. 1 John 4 throughout the chapter talks about love. And it starts out in verse 7 by saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God... And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the one who loves truly is reflecting the love that God typifies. That's what God designed us to do. He designed us to love. And so when we love, we're doing what he made us to do. Verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. The greatest display of love that man has ever seen was when God sent His Son to save us from the sins that we had committed, from the wrath of God that we had deserved. No greater act of love is even conceivable. And so he continues, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the only proper response to God's love. His love toward us is so immense that the only possible response we can have is to reflect it back to him. And that love must be evident. Later in the chapter he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So our love for man is the test. Do you truly love God? Then don't just say it. Don't just put it on a plaque on your wall. Love your neighbor who bears his image and show the whole world that you actually, truly, concretely love God. Long and short of it, my friends, love is the essential command that God sets before us. 
It is the summary of every commandment God has issued, every warning He has uttered, every obligation He has laid upon us. To love is the heart of the life that we owe God. He is our creator, He is our provider, He is our savior, He is our king, and He has done all of that in order to enable us to love Him. That's the heart of our service to Him, the heart of our worship to Him, the heart of our calling from Him, to love God above all and to love our neighbor as the bearer of God's image. This is the motivation that will compel the person who is spiritually healthy, the the purpose that will stand at the heart of everyone who has true life. Love is the righteous requirement expressed in all of God's law. It's how we were meant to live. It's what was meant to orient us. It's the passion that should pulse through our veins. God's righteous requirement is love. And it's a requirement that we, in sin, steadfastly refuse to uphold. That is what God's law, if properly applied to our lives, will always reveal. So our second point is man's persistent pattern of hatred. Our scripture reading from Romans 3 expresses it rather bluntly. Same verdict comes upon those who are Jewish or Gentile. Those raised in the covenant community within the church. Or those who've never heard God's word read to them. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. What's that mean? Verse 11 tells us no one seeks for God. They they pretend He doesn't exist. They serve what He created rather than the one who created it all. They use it for their purposes rather than His. Seek their glory rather than His. And as a result, verse 12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In their hatred, men naturally embrace what God hates and hate what God loves. They relentlessly rebel against God and His standards. You hear it in the way they talk. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Invariably, our tongue will reveal to the world the reality of our heart. Because our hearts hate God, our lips are hateful. God is the God of truth, so we speak what is a lie. Their feet are swift to shed blood in the way of peace they have not known. Because we hate God, we express our hatred toward man. We refuse to remain at peace with Him. We fight, we bicker, we divide. We bear grudges, we seek to get even. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the story of all of mankind. Verse 19, we know that what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No one among the sons of men is able to claim an exemption. Universally, from the word go, we embrace sin. Universally, we express hatred, and the hatred we express is all-encompassing. We hate God who made us to glorify Him. We hate man who is the living representative of God for us. That is what fills, what consumes, 
what guides the heart of every man in his natural state. But you say, wait a minute, how can that possibly be? I mean, we hear it all around us in our culture. If you give them the chance, if you take away all of the, the challenges that, that prevent it, men are, you know, they're naturally good. They'll naturally do the right thing if you just give them the chance. There's even a song, I believe most people are good. Sounds so good, it's so catchy, but it's a lie. A lie that smells of brimstone. Of themselves, men love only themselves. They will choose what benefits them no matter what it costs their neighbor. They will say things that hurt, deeply hurt, to make themselves feel better. They will climb the ladder relentlessly no matter whom they must push off in order to climb it. We even see it in our children. I want your toy, so I'm going to take it. And if you won't give it to me, then I'll hit you until you do. And if you cry out and a parent or an adult comes running, I'll lie and say that you did it so that you get in trouble and I don't. That's hatred. Hatred of man revealing the inherent hatred of God. That is what lives in the heart of every man, woman, and child from their earliest moment. And that leaves us miserable. The natural man has no peace, either within or without. Romans 3, verse 16. In their paths are ruin and misery. Ruin and misery for himself as he makes a train wreck of his life. Ruin and misery for his neighbor as he lives and acts and speaks without any regard for the neighbor's well-being. And no one of himself is able to escape. Verse 20 explains that if... If you were able to do anything to escape, it would have to be in line with God's righteous commands, right? It would have to be in line with God's law. But because of our hatred for God, because of the corruption that lives within, that's impossible. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All the law can do to us is show us what's wrong. All the law can do to us, well, really, is make it worse. Romans 7 tells us that. Right? The law shows us how we have derailed ourselves, how we have embraced hatred instead of love. And in so doing, it gives us ideas for different ways to sin. All the law can do is reveal the misery. It can't allow us to escape. And my friends, that misery will eternally destroy us as long as we rely on us. Understand that well. Men do their utmost to flee from this fact. To hide from this reality. They drink themselves into oblivion. They seek thrills that chase reality away. They, they consume night and day with relentless work. They embrace entertainment that's made to, to distract them from the truth. But ultimately, every single one will face the reality of their misery. And that reality, if men continue relying on themselves, that reality will eternally crush them. No two ways around it. The misery into which we, will, we were born will crush us if we insist on enduring it by our strength. Kids, do you know what it means to be culpable? It means that you are responsible for the outcome. We are culpable for our hatred. Even though 
Adam's sin left us corrupt. Each one of us chooses from our earliest days to embrace that hatred, that selfishness, that rebellion against God. Each one of us chooses, whether consciously or not, we choose from the heart to hate God instead of love Him, to hate our neighbor instead of love them. We were designed to love. And when we refuse, it's our fault. We're responsible. And therefore, we each must answer to God for withholding our love. That is the essence of our misery. Because we know in our hearts... Why is it? Look at our nation. Why is it that today there is so much depression and grief and angst and bitterness? It's because in their hearts they know that they're rebelling against God. In their hearts they know they're going to have to answer for all of this selfishness, for all of this hatred. And there's nothing they can do about it. They just keep going from hatred to hatred to hatred. They just keep deepening their misery. Like men in a hole that is collapsing around them and they just keep digging it deeper. Of course they're miserable. Of course they're filled with grief and anger and wrath. It's because they know that everything they're doing is bringing their sin down upon them and all they can see to do is to keep digging. There is an answer, but the answer does not ever involve relying on us. John, 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that takes away wrath. God is justly angry, righteously angry. You think of Psalm 94. When the wicked do their wicked works, when they do that which is rebellious against God and hateful toward man, they deserve the judgment of God. They deserve His righteous wrath. He made us and equipped us from the start to do what, it, what was right and loving. We turned that in a wicked direction in rebellion, in hatred. It is right for Him to be wrathful against men, but Jesus came to take that wrath upon Himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was receiving the fullness of the wrath of God for the sins of every one of His people. That is the essence of love. Romans 3 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. We can't do anything to escape His wrath. We can't do anything to pay the price for our hatred. But... What a beautiful word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, hear that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our misery. We've embraced hatred. We've embraced rebellion. 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. That's our escape. And it's the only one available. Think of our assurance of pardon from this morning. It's the only way that we get out of that pit that we in our hatred have dug. Many, like that self-righteous Pharisee, approach God proudly. How will you gain entrance? Ask them this. How will you gain entrance into God's heaven? Well, I'll just tell them, you know, I think I did pretty good. I look at how other people did and the sins they committed, and I think, you know, I'm not that bad, really. But God doesn't grade on a curve. He demands absolute perfection, perfection of love. And none of us can attain it. As long as we're looking up to heaven and saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, we have no hope. Instead, we must stand with that humble, miserable tax collector. Standing far off, he beat his breast in anguish over his sin. He refused even to look up to heaven, knowing that he was not worthy to look on God. But instead, he humbly begged, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the path of life, my friends. This is the path of forgiveness and of comfort. We must confess the ugliness of our sin. We must seek the salvation of Jesus alone and we must pray for His help. Acknowledging that there is nothing in us that deserves it but that Jesus did it all. God's law reveals the reality of our misery. It shows us how we ought to be. Right? By revealing His righteous requirement of love. This is what we were meant to do. What we were meant to be. We were meant to love God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength. We were meant to love our neighbor as ourself. If we were doing what God created us to do, this is what we would do. But when we take that standard and we place it next to us... Instead of seeing love, we see man's persistent pattern of hatred. Hatred which displaces the love that we were meant to show. Hatred which excites the wrath of God against us. Only Jesus can relieve our misery. But He can, and He does, and He draws us into comfort and life that no one can take away. So let us look to Him. Let us trust wholeheartedly in Him and let us rejoice in the comfort that comes to those who know that Jesus has covered our every sin in His love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are more gracious, more righteous, more good than we could ever have conceived of in ourselves. You have provided precisely what we needed and what we could never have attained on our own. Father, we pray that you would receive us through Jesus and that you would excite in our heart the faith that would turn to him continually. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let us recall in song the humble faith by which alone we can live. As we turn to number 430, Lord, like the publican, I stand. Number 430.